Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah, reading at chapter 9 and verses 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the psalmist wrote, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Lord God, by your Holy Spirit at work in us, direct us in accordance with your word. Turn our hearts towards it. Cause us to delight in it, that we might indeed turn away from all else and turn to you, in whose word is life, life eternal. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. <clears throat> One of my earliest recollections around Christmas time was of my mum lighting candles on our Christmas tree, a real tree. 
there were no artificial ones around, well, at least not up our close in Cranhill, nor were there any electric Christmas tree lights. Hence, mum lighting the candles. Some of you will perhaps remember the type. They were in different colours of wax, blue, red, green, yellow, and each had a metal clasp, which mum attached to the branches of the tree. She then carefully lit the candles. Why it was ever thought to be a good idea to have lit candles on a Christmas tree in the living room, I don't know. But the effect was wonderful. The tree festooned with candles, each little living flame lighting up the darkness. Light in the darkness, a recurring Advent theme. Seen in the Christmas lights of all descriptions all around us. Lights which, acknowledged or not, recall the heavenly light that shone into the darkness, shone into the darkness of a Bethlehem hillside as the Word became flesh, the light of the world shining in the darkness, the true light, the light of Christ that the darkness would not overcome. The light heralded centuries earlier by the prophet Isaiah in the passage we have just read, Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, which I invite you to turn to now. Light, light to see, the light that comes from God's living word, light that shines in the darkness, giving light to see the grace of God, even in the midst of great darkness, the grace of God that keeps holding on. How so? Naphtali and Zebulun were two of the ten tribes that comprised the northern kingdom of Israel. Their territories lay in proximity to the Sea of Galilee. It was a problematic location, for Naphtali and Zebulun were first stop for any northern invader, which was what had, had happened. As verse 1 puts it, the land of Naphtali and Zebulun had been humbled. And that happened as the juggernaut that was the Assyrian military machine under the command of the king Tiglath-Pileser had made its first incursion into Israel around 732 BC. This is how 2 Kings 15 and 29 describes the outcome. He, Tiglath-Pileser, took Gilead and Galilee, including all the land of Naphtali, and deported the people to Assyria. This was God's judgment. God's judgment on the northern kingdom, following 200 years of apostasy, two centuries of their turning away from the one true God, during that time, as First and Second Kings records, those in the northern kingdom worshipped idols, sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire, practiced divination and sorcery, provoking the Lord their God to anger. Soon, 
darkness would descend completely. The northern kingdom would be wiped off the map as Assyria finished the job, taking the capital, Samaria, and the remaining territory around it. The darkness of national disaster. The darkness of defeat. The darkness of despair. Yet here, in these opening verses of Isaiah 9, an end of darkness is promised to the northern tribes. A people who had been false and faithless to the Lord their God. They had been faithless, but he refused to let go of them. The Lord God never forgets his people. The grace of God keeps holding on. Even to a people as here, living in self-chosen spiritual darkness. As verse 2 puts it, those living in a land of deep darkness. In these verses, Isaiah insists that hope is a present reality. Even in the midst of disaster, there is light in the darkness. In the darkness of the 8th century BC, in which Isaiah ministered under the threat of Assyria. In the darkness of the 21st century, the darkness of Gaza, the darkness of Ukraine and all that could come from them. The darkness of circular Scotland. In the midst of such, how will we live? Will we look at the darkness that surrounds us and conclude that God has forgotten us? Or, remembering Naphtali and Zebulun, remembering God's past mercies, will we remember his present promises? The promise of, of Advent. The promise of Emmanuel, God with us. I see again, Isaiah insists that hope is a present reality. The darkness is, of course, real. No sane person then or now could deny that. But that's not the whole truth. And certainly not the ultimate truth, the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality that lies in the God of all creation, maker and sustainer of the universe. The God who Isaiah declares in the future will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the nations beyond Israel, the world beyond all nations. This promised light in the darkness, a great light, the light of God's promised Messiah, his suffering servant, is for the world, is for everyone, is for you and me. For those living in deep darkness, a light has dawned. Has dawned. Isaiah speaks as if it had already happened because it is certain, because it is a promise made by God. We are presented in these verses with a God whose grace keeps holding on even in the face of continuing rebellion. This is the light 
in the darkness the history of God's people presents us with. It presents us with a God of grace, the God who will hold us fast. Listen to these words of Jesus in John 10 and verse 29 concerning those who are his. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Did you catch that? Greater than all. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is the hope of Christmas for all who believe. Hope for the world. Light in the darkness. The grace of God. The grace that keeps holding on. Light in the darkness. The grace of God that keeps holding on. And this brings forth praise. Praise that cannot be contained. Praise that bursts out in verses 3 to 5. Look at how they begin. You have enlarged the nations and increased their joy. You have, says Isaiah. Isaiah exalts his God as the one responsible for what is described in verses 3 to 5, and praises him for doing so. And we are intended to do likewise. What God has done is intended to bring forth praise from us. Advent should be a time of praise. Praise that cannot be contained because of what God has done. That's what we see in these verses. We see celebration. We see joy in God's people. We see praise because of the dawning of the light. Light in the darkness brings forth rejoicing. The kind of rejoicing, the kind of happiness, the kind of relief that comes, as verse 3 tells us, when the harvest is all in and you can rest secure. The kind of gladness that comes when victory in battle means you can divvy up the plunder. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. Do you remember it? He has made me glad. He has made me glad. If you recognize it, take a bonus. <laughs> but hopefully some of you remember the old chorus. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice because he has made me glad. He has made me glad. What an apt Advent anthem for us to be singing for all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Singing praise to the one and only living God. The God Isaiah praises in verse 4, giving the reason for his people's celebration. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. This will be the experience, says Isaiah, of those walking in great darkness, couched in words that recall the days recorded in Judges 6 and 7, when God's people were under the heel of the Midianites and delivered by a seemingly impossibly puny band of 300 men under the command of Gideon. 
who achieved a resounding and total victory over the great power of Midian. A victory given, God tells his people in Judges 7-2, in order that Israel, Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. The only explanation for Midian being defeated was God. It was 100% down to him. And this divine intervention is underscored in verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Every last scrap of military hardware will go up in smoke. There will be God-given peace because of the coming child. And as verse 7 tells us, it is he who will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He who will accomplish this. He who is the coming one, God's Messiah. We call him Jesus, the light in the darkness, the one who brings a change from darkness to light, the one who brings gladness of heart. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. Does he make us glad? And do we praise him for it? And the knowledge that he and he alone could save us. And if that were not the case, then like Gideon and the 300, we would be done for. And in that knowledge, in the knowledge that this is all of God, do we praise him with praise that cannot be contained but burst forth from us? Light in the darkness that brings forth praise that cannot be contained. Light in the darkness Praise that cannot be contained. And the child who makes all the difference. The child who makes all the difference. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God's answer to all the darkness that surrounds us all the darkness that indwells us is a child. But no ordinary child. To us, a child is born. Born of human parentage. But given as a son from God. And the government will be on his shoulders. Shoulders here symbolizes rule. This is what the Lord Almighty says in Isaiah 20 and 22. I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. This child, this Jesus, 
He and he alone will open up the way to the kingdom. He and he alone can open up the way to the kingdom. Sometimes you'll hear folk confronted by a huge problem or desperate circumstances say, we have broad enough shoulders to bear this. Christ's shoulders can bear all. He shoulders the burden. The burden he alone can bear. The burden of sin in his body on the cross. The light in the darkness taking the sin of the world upon himself. All are follies. All are failures. All are foibles. Everything we know about ourselves that no one else does. All are sin. Let me take that from you, he says. Let me be to blame. I'm big enough. I'm wide enough. I'm strong enough. The child who will make all the difference. The one who will be called Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah 28 and verse 29 says, The Lord Almighty is wonderful in counsel. The use of the same terminology here points to the child's deity. This king then will be the one who can see and discern accurately the right path to take at any time. We have a wonderful counsellor. Do we avail ourselves of his wisdom? Do we seek his counsel on a regular basis? In short, do we read his word on a regular basis? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path, says the psalmist. Can we say likewise? Or do we go our own way? Why would we not want in all our quandaries and perplexities to have such a counsellor directing our path? To have God with us every step of the way. That is, of course, how the child has already been described in Isaiah 7. As Emmanuel, God with us. A truth now underscored. For the child will also be called mighty God. And those who know him know they have his protection in their weakness. Light in the darkness. Our hope rests on no insecure foundation. Not on sand, but on the rock of ages. 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. The Father image expresses the role of the coming King as he ex exercises care and concern on behalf of his people. In the words of the hymn, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. Father-like he tends and spares us, well or feeble frame he knows. This part of the child's name perfectly balances the immediately preceding one. For if mighty God speaks of his power and might to fight for and defend his people, everlasting Father speaks of the tenderness and compassion with which he cares for them in every circumstance of life. How does the prayer we say almost every Sunday begin? Our Father, who art in heaven. The Shorter Catechism asks, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? What does this teach us when we say, Our Father, who art in heaven? And the answers, it teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us. Picture God the Father. Picture him running down the road to embrace that prodigal son. God the Father cares. Draw near him. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In biblical terms, peace is more than the absence of war. As desirable as that peace is, peace, shalom, is well-being, flourishing, freedom from anxiety. To be at peace, to have peace, to have shalom, is to be whole and complete. The Prince of Peace, Jesus, is himself the whole man, perfectly integrated, a perfectly rounded personality, at one with God and humankind, perfectly at peace. And as a prince, these are the benefits he administers to his people. Peace, I leave with you, he says. My peace, I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the one who came to bring peace. That's what the angels sang. Luke 2 and 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. Peace comes from Jesus, from being in Christ. 
all other peace, as blessed as it might be, is less than the real deal. Is less than the real deal if it does not come from the nail-scarred hands of the Prince of Peace. Peace with God. Peace with men and women. Peace that only the Prince of Peace can bring. If we look elsewhere for peace, ultimately we will be disappointed. For people to know peace, for nations to know peace, for the world to know peace, the peace of Jesus, they have to know the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is what the child who makes all the difference in this world and the next will be called. This is his name, his character, his nature, his way with his people. This is his name. Is it sweet to our ears? Does it move us? Does the light in the darkness, the light of Christ, bring forth praise? Praise that cannot be contained. But there's more to hear, more of the child. Isaiah goes on to describe his rule. It will be everlasting. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. A perfect kingdom ruled with justice and righteousness. This will be no ordinary king. This person will not be a king among kings in Israel. He will be the final king, the king to end all kings, king of kings and lord of lords. He is the holy one, the only one who can accomplish what God has sent him to do. The child who will make all the difference, the child in a manger. A child in a manger. Not exactly where we would naturally go looking for help in a world like ours. But if we are looking for light in the darkness, freedom from the bondage of sin, a righteous kingdom that has no end, then it has to begin in a byre in Bethlehem. Feeding trough, swaddling bands and all. It can begin nowhere else because it has to begin with Jesus. Like the shepherds, like the wise men, we have to come to Bethlehem. We have to come to Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of everything. The child who will make all the difference. The child who will bring all of this to pass. Too much of a promise. Too much to believe. Tempted to be a wee bit sceptical? Believe it, says God's word. For the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Go back to the beginning of the passage. Go back to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. 
At this point, he had turned most of the northern kingdom into Assyrian provinces. A rump around the capital, Samaria, is all that remained. Judah, under weak king Ahaz, is in little better shape. And as 2 Kings 16 tells us, is about to entrust itself, if you would believe it, to the tender mercies of Assyria. The outlook is bleak. None of what is recorded in verses 1 to 7 looks to have any chance of coming to pass. Yet it was in the day of human weakness that became the time of God's power. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, declares Isaiah. What may seem unbelievable is not only credible, but certain. Because the zeal that we are talking about is heaven's hot and holy power to get things done. The Lord God's burning passion to fulfill his plans. So, as bleak as things look for God's people in 8th century BC Israel, all this will come to pass. We know this because we are here worshipping in 21st century Uddingston, worshipping Jesus the child who will make all the difference, knowing that part of the plan has already been fulfilled and that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish the rest. The outlook for Christianity may be bleak in most parts of our nation. 2024 may have its own challenges for us here in Park. But there is light in the darkness. The grace of God keeps holding on. There is light in the darkness, the light of the coming Christ that brought forth in Isaiah's day praise that could not be contained. May that praise be in us. May we rejoice, for he has made us glad this Advent. For there is indeed light in the darkness because of the child who makes all the difference, all the difference in the world, in this world and the next. He, who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Jesus, our savior, king of kings and lord of lords, light in the darkness. Amen. Let's pray. Light in the darkness, Lord God, because of Jesus. Light to see the way ahead. Light to see him who is the way. And so to pray that his truth, his life, would be seen even in the darkness, the darkness that is Ukraine that is Gaza, that is our own individual situations, which you know. Draw near and meet us in them, we pray. That the truth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, might enable us to overcome And this we ask in his sweet name. Amen.